You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, nurse practitioner, Clara Bryan. And today I have Dr. Eleonora Toplinski. She is a medical oncologist in New Jersey, and she does predominantly women's cancers. And I'm going to let her um, tell us a little bit more about that. But I'm so excited to talk to you. This is something we just don't talk enough about. And I'm I'm so appreciative of you giving me an hour of your time. Thank you for having me. Um, it is great because these are conversations that you're right, we don't share enough about and talk about. So it's really important to bring them to the public and, and talk about these hard topics. Uh, so I'll introduce myself a little bit. As yeah. you mentioned, I'm Eleanor Chaplinsky. I am a medical oncologist. I'm board certified in all medical oncology, but I specialize in breast and gynecologic cancer. So that is 100% of what I do. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, medical oncology is really anything from chemotherapy to anti-hormonal therapy for breast cancer to targeted therapies. There's a lot of new medications, immunotherapy. So it's really anything that's treating the cancer kind of throughout the whole body. I'm not doing surgery. I'm not doing radiation. So yeah. Yeah. So for that, we have surgical oncologists and radiation oncologists. So every, you know, it's a big team um, and everyone has their role to play. Uh, and you know, one of the reasons that I have really been active on social media and I host the podcast and to really share people's experiences and to kind of bring this into the public and, you know, so much of cancer is outside of the exam room and outside of the doctor's office. It's outside of that 15 minutes that you are with your oncologist. It's everything that comes after. And so I think the more we have those conversations, yeah you know, the more that we validate and normalize all of these things, I think the better the experience of someone going through treatment is going to be. It really is. It's a very life altering diagnosis, um, kind of what, whatever the, the diagnosis is, there's obviously a huge gamut, um, ranging from, you know, you need surgery, chemo, radiation, and all of it to, mm-hmm. you know, we can just cut this out quickly. And, but, but just the word cancer and getting the diagnosis is, it really is life altering. It really is. Um, okay. So I will talk about breast, but I actually wanted to start with the GYN cancers because I feel like that is just not really talked about enough. I feel like other than cervical Mm -hmm. cancer, women don't even really realize what's possible. Um, Okay. So can you just give us a basic overview of what are the different GYN cancers that you see? Absolutely. And you're right, right? We talk a lot about, okay, you need your mammogram. Everyone knows that that you need to do Totally. Yeah. But with GYN, there's a couple of, you know, things we need to keep in mind. So the three most common gynecologic cancers are going to be uterine cancer, Uh cervical cancer, and ovarian cancer. Um, Mm -hmm. You can have 
you know, kind of more rare vulva or vaginal cancers, but those are less common. So if you focus on the three most common, those are the three. Okay. Pap smears, and this is a very common misconception, pap smears are only testing for cervical cancer. Right. So a lot of people will say, oh, I had a pap smear and everything was fine. Great. I'm glad that you had your pap smear. There's other stuff. (laughs) We're not... There's other stuff. Um, And the challenge is that there actually isn't really any good screening for uterine cancer or ovarian cancer. So cervical, we know, you get your pap smear. The guidelines are different depending on your age, depending on whether you're having HPV co-testing with your pap smear. Um, And that's something that you're going to decide individually with your gynecologist about how often you need to get your screening. Mm -hmm. They usually still want you to get a pelvic exam once a year. Um, up until a certain age. So again, these are all individual based on guidelines, of course. For uterine, that does tend to be a cancer we see more in the older postmenopausal population. Mm-hmm. The most common presentation of uterine cancer is going to be postmenopausal bleeding. Okay. All of a sudden, you you know stopped getting your periods a couple of years ago, and now you have a, you know even a drop of blood that needs to be evaluated. So you know, a lot of times it's nothing. A lot of times do younger mm-hmm. women, do younger women not get, yeah, you can't, or not, you can't, but like younger women don't really get you, you uterine. Can. So rare. You can, but it's not as, it's not as common. Okay. So it's more, uh, more for the older population. With okay. that said, you can definitely get it, but it's just not as common. Um, and so postmenopausal bleeding, you know, okay. we say, you know, needs to be worked up. Ovarian cancer, so this is the, that's the one that's really driven by genetic mutations. Uterine cancer can be driven by something called Lynch syndrome, which increases risk for colon and uterine cancer. Mm-hmm. But when we think of genetics, we're thinking of the BRCA gene, BRCA1, right. BRCA2, and those are the ones really increasing your risk for breast and ovarian cancer. And for that, again, there's no great screening. We usually recommend getting the ovaries and fallopian tubes removed when someone is done having kids. But, you know, I have a lot of women who are, you know, in their 30s and they're not done having kids. And so we'll do screening with pelvic ultrasounds and blood tests, understanding that it's not ideal, but it's kind of the best thing that we have. So that that was a I put up a question box and that was one of the questions well a, a couple of them actually you touched on but one of the questions was why don't we have better screening for ovarian and and uterine um and I I think I think that's well you, what's your okay so why I'll just ask you why why don't we have better screening for yeah. ovar, ovarian and uterine cancer or what is well we're is you know we're limited we're limited yeah. So for uterine, there's really no screening. Um, You know, obviously if someone has symptoms, you're going to work those up, but that's a diagnostic workup. That's not a screening workup. So for example, for let's just compare it to breast cancer. So you have a mammogram that is able to really evaluate calcifications. You know, think about how you get your mammogram. You put your breast into this machine and they squeeze it and they get a picture and they're able to see, are there changes? Is there a mass? Are there calcifications? You can't really do that with the ovaries. There's just no great way to image the inside of the ovaries. Um, So that's part of it. You can visualize if they look big, if they look different. But there have been a lot of screening studies looking at pelvic ultrasounds to see, you know, does the ovary look big and things like that. And while that's something that we still use, it's not recommended because it wasn't shown to impact 
helpful. It doesn't impact survival. So again, I do it with the caveat that, look, it's not great, but I get it. You want some sort of test done. Um, And the same thing for uterine cancer. There's just no great way to screen. And also um, uterine cancer and ovarian cancer are much more, um, much less common Mm -hmm. than breast cancer. So you have to also think about population screening and risk benefit, but we, you know, figuring out who is at risk for these cancers and what do we do about them? So kind of tying that into the, to the BRCA one and two, which if you'll just give like a high level, what are BRCA one and two, but, but then, and, and how, how does that tie in differently? Cause that is it. That's a totally different conversation than just the general population of women talking about their ovaries. So what is like the high level overview of back, of BRCA one and two? Absolutely. So yeah, when we talk about all these guidelines for testing, we're talking about average patients. And you'll see this with breast a lot. They'll say, if you're average risk, start at this age. Uh Who is going to be at high risk, right? What determines high risk? So one of those things is, did you inherit a genetic mutation Mm -hmm. from your family member that predisposes you to develop breast and and or ovarian cancer. And Mm -hmm. one of those genetic mutations is a mutation in either the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene. So we all have those genes in our body, but they can become mutated, meaning that there is a change in the gene. And that change is going to what increases your risk significantly for breast and or ovarian cancer. The BRCA mutations also increase your risk for melanoma, pancreatic cancer, Mm. prostate cancer. So it's not just a lot of times people think, oh, it's just for females. It's breast and ovarian. It's not, you know. Okay. Yeah, it's it's all these other cancers as well. So when when somebody has one of these mutations, because somebody somebody asked this question, I I was like, God, I I hope you don't have this. But they said, if you've got a BRCA1, a patient that's been tested, so say they had a, and and the reason you would even test people is when when they've got a strong family history, you're in their high risk, and and that's when the testing comes around, Mm -hmm. right? But so say the testing comes back positive, what would the recommendations be and, and why? Because I, I think that's people see, you know, Angelina Jolie getting mastectomies and they're like, wait, do we all need to be doing this? And it, but it's, it's a very specific population with the mutation. And so what do you do when you've got a patient that comes back positive? So to back up, um, you're absolutely right. You want to test ideally if you have a family history. Uh-huh. A lot of times you actually pick up these mutations when people get diagnosed with cancer at a younger age. So let's say they're 35 and they get diagnosed with breast cancer. We send right. them for genetic testing and then we pick up the mutation. So in a perfect world, you would find the mutation before they got diagnosed with cancer so that you right. can do something about it. So if you have a mutation, the recommendations are, um, number one, to consider a risk-reducing bilateral mastectomy, which means taking the breasts out, removing the breasts. Now, some people are not ready for that step. Uh, they don't, maybe they they don't want to do it. They want to wait, you know, whatever the reasons are. And so if you're not having a mastectomy, then we recommend increasing your breast cancer screening. In addition to your mammogram, you're going to add in an MRI. So then every six months, you're either getting a mammogram or an MRI. Mm-hmm. For ovarian cancer, the recommendation is removal of both the fallopian tubes uh-huh. and the ovaries when you are done having children. So that's typically going to be in the late 30s uh-huh. for a lot of people. Sometimes it's later, sometimes it's earlier. And those decisions are really hard to make. And I think a lot of it depends too on, you know, was there ovarian cancer in the family? At what age did 
you know, your family member have it, but these are really hard decisions because think about taking your ovaries out is going to put you into permanent menopause. And the younger that you do it, the higher the risk of menopausal related, you know, things like heart disease and osteoporosis. And so, you know, we have guidelines, but for anything, we take guidelines and then we apply them to the individual person and we make a recommendation. Yeah. The guidelines, not an end all be all, but, um, Mm-hmm. So, so what, what's that risk? So I think this is important to kind of make this distinction of like, what's the risk of your average woman getting breast cancer versus like what the reason why you would recommend mastectomy is because what is their risk? Like 80, there's like an 80% chance. Is it right? That they're going to ha- have the diagnosis versus the average woman's risk. So let me give you, so the average risk of getting breast cancer over one's lifetime mm-hmm. is, you know, we talk about the one in eight women get diagnosed mm-hmm. with breast cancer over their lifetime. So that's about a 12% lifetime risk. If you have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, your risk for breast cancer can be as high as 70, 80%. It's mm-hmm. a little bit more for BRCA1 than for BRCA2. Um, so it's significantly, right? If you're going from right. 12% to 80%, 80. I mean, that's, that's huge. I mean, that's huge. Is it the same kind of um, jump for ovarian or what's the, is it similar? Numbers? No, ovarian is, ovarian's less. So ovarian, um, if you're the average person um, has a 1.4% lifetime risk of getting ovarian cancer. So right away okay. we see it's a lot less than breast. Right. And for BRCA, for BRCA1, it's about a 40% risk of ovarian cancer. And for BRCA2, it's about like a 15, 20% risk. That's so high though, because there's no screening. I mean, it's like, gosh, I, I, I so that's, oh. That's why, and and the thing with screening too is that screening is going to allow you to find something early, but it's not preventive, right? So the only right. so because we we know that the risk is so high, that's why we do recommend thinking about mastectomy, thinking about getting the ovaries out, because that's really going to be your only way of really reducing your risk, risk. to almost zero percent um, yeah. of getting this. And a, a fact that many people don't know is actually a lot of ovarian cancer originates in the fallopian tubes. Oh. Uh, and so that's why when we talk about getting the ovaries out, we're also thinking about getting the fallopian tubes, tubes out as well. as well. So let's talk about um, risk a little bit because there was another, a couple of questions actually. It's funny. I feel like there's usually like trends in the questions and it all, it works out this way every time. And there were several questions about PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome and risk. Um, does that make your risk any different, any higher, or, you know, is it harder to, to, I would say screen them, but you're not, it's not like we're screening anyway. So, um, PCOS seemed to be a big question in terms of risk. So the PCOS data is actually not conclusive, mm-hmm. um, in terms of whether it increases risk or not. And it's definitely not going to be, you know, anything, anything definitive. There are, um, nothing that I would point to in saying someone is, high risk based on having PCOS. Okay. On the same risk topic, this is my fave topic, uh, vaccines. So let's talk about cervical cancer and the vaccine that is now available. Cause it's been, it's one of the more, it's, I feel like it's the last vaccine that was controversial, like before we got to the COVID vaccine. So yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Yeah. So I can give me, yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit. Now, I keep in mind I'm not a gynecologist, so I'm not. I'm not. This is not something I'm routinely discussing in my practice. But I do have a lot of my patients who will ask about whether they should get their kids 
vaccinated. Um, so we're talking about the HPV vaccine. So HPV is human papillomavirus, and it is the virus you know responsible for many many cases of cervical cancer. Yep. And you know we've tried. I mean, they have tried to get a vaccine for so many cancers, and really have only been successful at cervical cancer right now, yeah. um, as well as some other cancers that are caused by HPV, um, sort of anal cancers and things like that. Head and neck. So and- HPV had a, had a neck as well. The ones now, now not all head and neck cancers are HPV driven. So we're right. just talking about the ones that are HPV driven, but there are, you know, the HPV vaccine came in, I want to say like, it's probably been, I don't know, maybe 20 years. So I remember I I got it when I was like in high school. It was new when I was in high school, which was a little over 20 years ago. Yeah. So it's, I think it's been about five years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it was, it was controversial and it still is controversial. I think more people are accepting of it. Um, and the recommendation at this time is starting getting it around age 11 or 12. Yeah. Um, but you can get it as early as age nine. And they do recommend that people who are between 13 to 26 kind of catch up. And if you haven't gotten it, um, mm-hmm. to get it by then over 26, they, I think you can technically get it, but it's not, re- not as not really done. Um, but it is something you could consider doing. I think depending on, you know, your risk, do you have multiple sexual partners, lots of new sexual partners and things like that. It's also recommended both for males and females. Um, and, you know, again, lots of controversy about it, but it really has cut down significantly on the risk of cervical cancer mm-hmm. in the U.S., which, you know, cervical cancer, again, one of those things that, you know, we have good screening, we have pap smears, but you know, it's, if you get diagnosed with cervical cancer, the treatment is hard and the prognosis is not always great. No, we, I have a friend who I'm sure several, you know, tons of my listeners in Charleston will know, um, who was diagnosed with cervical cancer, um, had just gotten married and was having, you know, in the middle of her first pregnancy and was diagnosed and died about 18 months later. Um, and she was 31, you know, and I think, like you said, it's just, yes, we, even that when we have screening, but the treatment is not easy. Um, it's not like you just go through, you know, a little bit, a little bit of chemo or, you know, small surgery. I mean, it's, it's really significant treatment. Um, and I just, I want parents to, and this is probably a different topic or conversation, but I, I feel like there's chatter among parents about, this being a vaccine that like gives your child permission to have sex. And I don't know where that's mm-hmm. come, like, what, why? Yeah, that's, I don't discuss I, I think that's that. Really just, <laughs> no, you know I mean, like, I think it's recognizing that like your kids are going to do, yeah. And I have very young kids. I haven't had to have this conversation right. with them yet. Um, but you know, I, I think kids are going to do what they're going to do. And I think it's our job as parents to give them tools to stay safe, you know, by just not vaccinating kids, we are increasing their risk for, you know, HPV also, we're not just talking cervical cancer, we're talking general warts. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, morbidity from yeah. HPV, not to mention if you've had HPV, you do need more frequent pap smears. Some people get colposcopy, some people, it, it's, it's a lot um, yeah. that if we can cut down on that, um, you know, it's also a public health benefit. I mean, by if, again, it's similar 
to the COVID vaccine, right? You're not helping just yourself. You're helping other, other people. Well, I think that was a a point that I heard at at one point, you know, we all want to think that, you know, that our kids are going to be just chaste and pure before marriage or if you care about that. Some people don't care. That's fine. Some people care. Some people don't care. Um, But, you know, you've got to think about what if they marry someone who had had sex before marriage, even if it's not your child, they're going to have a a partner at some point. And it's just um, so incredibly common. I mean, I'm not sure what the percentages of the population Mm -hmm. that has it, but it's super high. Like it's very high. I don't know the numbers, but it's high. It's Well, this is why actually they stopped recommending they change the age of the pap smear recommendations because he used to if you remember we used to start getting them at 18 and now yeah. it's 21 because so many people were getting hpv and they, they would clear it but it would cause all these abnormal pap smears and all this testing yeah yeah it's tough i i wish um i wish it weren't such a controversial vaccine because it's so important like you said it's it cervical is the biggest one but um anal, penile, and then all, you know, multiple head and neck cancers that are HPV mediated, which I think people really don't think about that, but that's, you know, mouth and throat. Um, it's, it's really significant impact. So I hope people will, you know, kind of reconsider, but okay. So in a general topic of risk reduction, um, what else do you recommend in terms of risk reduction in terms of lifestyle? I think we don't really talk about that enough either. Yeah, so this is like my favorite topic to talk about because there's so much oh, that good. we can do. We can't. <laughs> so we can't. This is all I talk about all day long uh, with patients. But here's the deal. Look, there's so many things we can't eliminate, right? So those are going to be our okay. not modifiable risk factors. You can't eliminate your genetic history. You can't control your family history. You can't right. control things like, you know, when you started getting your menstrual period and all of those things that factor into a risk but you can control your lifestyle. And so I hate the term cancer prevention because unless you're actually taking the breast out or the ovaries out, you can't prevent cancer, okay. but you can reduce your risk. Right. So here are the lifestyle modifications. Number one, the most important is exercise. Yeah. You have to move. I mean, we are in an obesity epidemic. We are, everyone is sedentary and we've seen this more and more with COVID. I feel like with COVID, either people really stepped up their exercise routine or they just kind of, stopped going to the gym and we're working from home and not moving as much, but exercise 30 minutes, five days a week, things that are getting your heart rate up. We're not talking about marathon training. We're talking about going out for a walk and walking briskly. Supplements and vitamins are just a part of so many of our daily lives now. So how do we know what to choose in a brand? My family personally uses Thorne. Thorne has partnerships with hospitals and universities across the country, including the Mayo Clinic and Charleston's own Medical University of South Carolina. You can order any Thorne product through me when you create your account at thorne.com slash you slash dabblecoat, and you'll receive 15% off and free shipping on all your future orders. When you create your account, you'll just be prompted to confirm Dabbleco as your referral and the discounts applied in the cart after you create your account. Again, that's thorn.com slash you, like the letter U, slash Dabbleco. And you can also find the direct link in the show notes. But that has the biggest impact on cancer risk reduction. Do we know that? Breast cancer. It's no one. It's a number of reasons. So one, um, it certainly impacts uh, metabolism. Okay. It impacts insulin resist insulin resistance. Um, 
weight, it does impact weight. Although even if you're exercising and your BMI is still not in, you know, BMI is a terrible measure of weight, but it's, you know, in fitness, but it's just what we have. And that's kind of what's used in clinical trials. So even if your weight is not considered in the healthy category and I'm putting healthy in air quotation marks, air quotes quotes here. Um, but we know that exercise still really, really helps with that. Um, so just, and, and there's a lot we still don't know, but I will tell you that in breast cancer, people who exercise after being done with their chemo have a 63% lower risk of recurrence compared to those who don't. That is crazy. Insane. I mean, that's more effective than anything I can give you in terms of medication. So it's, you put on, you don't need anything fancy. I tell people you just need a pair of sneakers to get outside and walk. We don't need fancy Peloton bikes. We don't need fancy gym memberships. Like those things are cool if you have them, but you don't need them. I feel like in today's culture, people kind of are like, well, I don't have these things. So I, I don't, I am not going to exercise. You, you just don't need that. So that's exercise. Um, and we're talking both cardio and strength training, mm-hmm. both of those things. Uh, so number two is alcohol. Um, so this is going to differ a little yeah. bit based on cancers, but in breast cancer, hot alcohol topic. is like, we say it's hot topic. It's a risk factor. No one wants to talk about. I mean, I've had people really like get mad at me when I brought it yeah. up in the office, but and they're like, no, 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 I'm not cutting out my wine. And here's the deal. You don't have to. My job, my goal is to give you the risk and you can make a determination for yourself about like, do you want to, do you not want to? But yeah. the guidelines are that one drink a day increases your risk of either diagnosis of breast cancer or recurrence by 10%. Okay. That's pretty high. So 10% that's, you know, and now if you're, if your baseline risk is really low, you might be like, well, 10% of that, like whatever. I'm not, I'm going to keep up with my drink uh, of, you know, my wine every night. Whereas if your risk is already high because you have a family history, you know, maybe you're not exercising, maybe you're sedentary, then 10% really makes a difference. Yeah. Um, and then you also have to keep in mind, how do we pour alcohol? You know, normally we're pouring a little right. bit more Serving than size. a glass. So yeah. Exactly. You know, you go, go to a restaurant and they're giving you a giant, you know, um, glass of wine and then you're like, Oh, I'll have another. So now you've kind of had like three drinks in one night. So we yeah. recommend about three drinks a week on average. So if you're on vacation, you're going to a celebration, you can have more, but it's kind of, what are you doing on an average basis, day-to-day basis? And I look, one glass of, one extra glass of wine is not going to cause your cancer to come back. So I don't want people to feel guilty about enjoying it. Um, But it's just thinking about like trying to get away from that glass of wine a night habit. And it's interesting with women too, the the threshold is lower. So I was looking at some, I think I was looking up stuff for a podcast last year and I, you know, COVID, I just blame it, literally blame it for anything. But, mm. um, my husband never really would drink at home. And then when we were stuck at home during COVID and he was like, we're literally working like 18 hours a day, stress the max. And by five o'clock, he was like, I've got to have a drink. And so we started drinking more together. So that was like, well, and we're bored, you're bored, mm. you're drinking more. And I, I definitely was drinking two drinks a night um, for a little while. And then I was looking and realizing that amount, that's at least 14 drinks a week. And I was like, oh my God, I'm a heavy drinker. <laughs> what? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, that's, that's, I was that's mortified. <laughs> That's my well, classification. So, well, not I anymore. Mean, I've re- cut back significantly. Yeah. But yeah, that time I, I, I mean, I was so embarrassed. I was a heavy drinker. <laughs> a little while. 
Well, no, but so my husband and I were doing the same thing. Look, you know, we were both stressed and anxious and you get home and be like, all right, time to have a go. Oh, well, let's pour a second one. And finally, after like two weeks of this, I was like, this cannot be. It's not good. Like, we can't continue. We can't continue this. Um, but, you know, we are seeing, and I wonder, and I don't know the reason, data for this, but I wonder if we're going to see a higher risk of alcohol-driven cancers in, in the next decade mm-hmm. as a result of COVID. Yeah. And it very well could be. So that's exercise. Uh, We talked about alcohol. Mm -hmm. Then the two other ones, three other ones. One is um, nutrition. This is a huge topic that we could talk about forever, but I'll keep it very simple. More plants, less less processed food, less meat, less red meat. That's the big stuff. So, you know, everything's processed, but you're really limiting the ultra processed food staying away from, if you can, I try to say limit to once a week for red meat and then processed meat. So that's the bacon, the deli meat, the, you know, the um, uh, sausages, you know, and you see, and unfortunately you still see a lot on social media about like, have a deli sandwich for lunch, you know, from nutritionist. And, and look, once in a while, it's fine. But again, we want to get away from that, you know, salami sandwich every day for, for lunch. Yeah. Yeah. And it, what's so funny about alcohol and the, and nutrition, I feel like we are demonizing all of these other things like, you know, makeup and cleaning products and your, you know, alkaline water, mm-hmm. like we have to drink this kind of water. And so mm-hmm. there's, there's so many things we want to talk about. And it's like, no one wants to talk about the very basic things like you're talking about just less, Hey, mm-hmm. you eat red meat four times a week. Like your colon cancer risk just went through the roof, you know? Exactly. Like, so it's great that you changed your, you know, deodorant, um, which is fine if you want to do that. But like, you got to, you know, the problem is that alcohol and exercise and nutrition are so simple, but they're so hard to change because they're, they're habits and habits are hard to break, really hard to change. It's, it's hard to break and it's hard. It's hard work. I mean, it requires making time to exercise, making your nutrition a priority. That's more, you know, getting away from fast food and, and it's hard. And I think it's, I will say that it's really, really hard if you don't have a partner, if you live with other people in the house and they're not on board. Yeah. You know, it's hard to be the one, like, it's really tough. Um, I think you got to, both people have to be at least somewhat in tune to it because I have patients who will tell me, look, I want to make the change, but my husband eats eats steak four times a week and I'm not cooking two dinners. Yeah. Yeah. It is hard. And then kids throw kids in the mix and then, you know, it's a whole. Oh yeah, of course. Kids, okay, there's they're two, not going to eat your plant-based Oh, food. no, Lord, no. no, not at this point. I mean, I'm sure <laughs> if I had raised them as vegans, like from birth, then maybe we, we could be there because they wouldn't know any different. But no, it's at this point. I mean, we try our best, but you know, what were the other two yeah, you were going to say? There's five. Oh, so these, these, yeah, it's five. So um, vitamin D in breast cancer, we know keeping a normal vitamin D is important. That's uh-huh. easy to do. It's a blood test. You take a supplement, easy. And then um, obesity. And so being at a healthy weight, again, weight and air, you know, healthy weight and air yeah. quotes, but, um, you know, trying not to be overweight or obese, unfortunately, by the standards that are currently set, again, knowing they're not perfect. Um, and weight gain during menopause is a big one. So it's a 20, a 20 pound weight gain during menopause. And the reason for that is most of our breast cancer is estrogen driven and estrogen lives in fat cells. So the more weight you gain, the more fat cells you have, the more estrogen you're producing. 
So I think that's so important for people to hear because like you said, first of all, we, we, I think everyone in the medical community at this point would say BMI is not the best tool. And we know that it is not the best indicator of overall health. Like we, we get it, but it's just simple, easy, and a quick way to kind of identify the risk in your patients. But then we get into this. Now we're, we're in this really confusing place, I think, for, for both patients and providers of body positivity and wanting to, you know, make sure that we're not imposing societal standards of thinness and beauty and all this on, on women, particularly young women. However, we know that increased adipose tissue, which is increased fat tissue, raises your risk for certain cancers. So I w- yeah, I'd love to hear more about how how do you how do you have that conversation and and just putting it in in the plain facts? So really, just like that, I kind of I put it out there and I say, look, these this is the data, um, and we know it's not perfect. This is the research that we have, and what I the way I approach it is to tell people to get away from the scale. I actually told someone to throw their scale out last yeah. week, and I said, don't worry about the scale. I don't really I don't want you focus so much on the number. I want you yeah. doing all those healthy lifestyle things that we talked about, the exercise, the alcohol, the nutrition. Yeah. And if you are doing all of those things, I'm really, I feel good about that. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, I, if you're moving your body, you're taking care of your health. Um, I can see that your cholesterol is decreasing because you've cut out the red meat, your diabetes numbers are coming down, then you are healthy. And so I'm not going to worry so much about the number. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times we do see that weight gain um, is going to correspond with sometimes people being more sedentary, kind of yeah. falling off their healthy eating habits. And so they sometimes do go hand in hand. Where we struggle a lot is in our patients on who have estrogen sensitive breast cancers who get put on hormone blockers. And those medications definitely make it easier to gain weight and make it harder to lose. And yeah. so there's this, this awfulness, right? Because we're taught, we're saying, well, you got to be at a healthy weight, but Hey, I just gave you a medication that's making it really hard for you to be at a healthy weight. Right. Yeah. Um, and so in those situations, I'm just like, let's not, I'm not worried about this number. I'm, I want to know how you're taking care of yourself, you know? And also, I mean, look, after cancer, there's so many body image changes. You're figuring out who you yeah. are. You're in, you know, you maybe it's just so much that, I don't want people to really fixate on the number. And I will tell you, we we hired a registered dietitian for our practice mm-hmm. to really counsel awesome. people. And and it's great because we, we don't bill insurance, so it's all complimentary for patients. Um, and we just did a clinical trial, and nowhere in that was weight. We didn't collect people's weight. We didn't look at weight before or after. All we did was look at quality of life. So if you've been following DabbleCo and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. 
BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling, access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, it solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, so it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. Does your quality of life go up if you meet with the dietitian? And so we're taking, I think it's just so important to start taking weight out of some of these studies and really looking at how are we making patients feel? Because if we are empowering people to make healthy lifestyle choices, I think the rest of it will follow. Yeah. And then, and I, I love that you said, you know, if you're doing, so there were five things that you named that were, mm-hmm. you know, things that we can somewhat control to, to reduce our risk. And you can be, it sounds like you're saying you can be healthy at any weight when you're doing those other things. Is that kind of what I, I, I feel like I've heard that yeah, lately. I mean, you know, it's, it is. And I think, you know, there's a big movement for, you know, being again, healthy at any weight and, um, you know, body positivity. And I'm very, very much in favor of that and in support of that. But I, I do say that I tell patients the data and I will just lay yeah. it out there and I say, look, these are the numbers. Um, and we, we go in, I, I, to be honest, if you do it in a kind way that is patient centered, I've never, you know, I feel like we come to understanding like, look, the data is what it is. Yeah. You know, we know that BMI is not perfect, um, but it's here. And then let's put it all out there. Let's lay out your risk factors and then let's make a plan together about what you're going to do. And I, when I make plans with patients, I never set weight loss as a goal. Cause then I think you're, that's not the point. The point is let's make all these I love that. Let's make all these changes. So, you know, I'll say we do three small changes. So you're going to walk for 10 minutes a day, three times a week. You're going to cut out diet soda for lunch and you're going to make a plant-based meal once a week, right? So you're on your way. And I'm not saying I need you to lose five pounds and come back in a month. Yeah, I love that approach. So, because I mean, Mm -hmm. likely if you have those other goals that you're working on, we'll lead probably to weight loss, but it's not about the number. And even if it doesn't lead to weight loss, you're still reducing your risk. So I love phrasing it like that. And you're also feeling better, right? So, so many of the medications that we give people have horrible side effects, joint pain, hot flashes. And we know that exercise and nutrition can impact those side effects. So people start to feel better you know, by walking, they're exercising, they're like, oh, my knee pain is better, or, you know, I'm having less hot flashes. So it all, it all goes hand in hand. What's the hardest part about treating cancer patients? Oh, gosh, so many. I know, um, I just took a look you know, hard it, left. So many. <laughs> I mean, well, <laughs> that was definitely a hard left. I, I think, you know, one of the reasons I went into this field is because of the relationships you get to build with patients and their families. And, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, sometimes people die from cancer and those are, those are the hardest and, um, you, you build, you treat them for a long time. You get to know them, you get to know their families, you know, their kids. And 
those losses uh, are so hard for not just the oncologist, but for our whole team. Yeah. Uh, and, and along with that is when, you know, you're, you're with, you're with this patient for years, you're, you're, you're just cheering them on that their cancer doesn't come back. They're doing great. And then their cancer comes back, you know, and those yeah. just hit you so you, hard. Or there, do you or ever struggle hands, with guilt? You know? Like a guilty, I mean, and I, I'm saying this for if, yes. if anybody's new here, like I, I was in surgical oncology. Like I treated cancer patients for 10 years. So I feel like I can say this and not be like totally like putting this on you, but no, all, do you struggle with guilt? I think time. we all do. Yeah. All the time, right? When someone gets a scan that shows their cancer is growing or their cancer comes back, the first thing is, well, what could I have done something differently? Right. right. Or when I'm talking right. to people about hospice and, and saying, look, I, we don't have more cancer directed therapy to offer. And I always say, I, you know, you wish you could have done more. You wish you could have done something mm-hmm. differently, but in reality, there's nothing that you as an yeah. oncologist could have done. You know, it's, it's, there's so much we don't understand about cancer, but I will say, and I have said this from the beginning of, you know, since I started practicing oncology is that if there ever comes a day that you don't feel that gut punch when you get those scans or you, you start not feeling bad about these situations and that's the day you should no longer practice. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it really does feel like that when you get somebody, especially if you weren't expecting it, you know, and then a, like mm-hmm. you get a bad scan and you're yeah. literally like, fuck, I've got to call, call this person or call their yeah. family or whatever. All, all the time. Yeah. Those was, calls are, and I, I, those calls are hard. I was going to say, what's the best part, but it sounds like the best part to you still is the, probably the relationships. Cause you re, you spoke really highly of forming relationships with patients and that is, it's really special. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the privilege of getting to care for people on this life altering journey, you know, they, I don't know. I'm always humble. No matter how long I do this, I'm just so humble that every time someone's like, I want you to be my oncologist, right? Because you put yeah. all of your trust, you're in, you're, it's not, it's very different than treating high blood pressure. You know, you are putting your life, all of your trust, yeah. into, your life into this person's hands. And I just, I, I will never take that for granted. Mm, it is, it's, it is a privilege to care for people in that situation. I love you phrasing it like that. Um, so where can people find you? You're putting out really good information on social media and that's how someone recommended that I ask you to be on my podcast. And I was so glad that you said yes. So tell me, tell, tell everybody where they can find you. Absolutely. So I'm mostly active on Instagram at Dr. Teplinski, D-R-T-E-P-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Also on Facebook and Twitter, but not as much. Um, and then I have a podcast called Interlude where I share people's stories. I share conversations with experts in the field. They do some teaching on there for things that are a little bit too long for social media. Uh, so lots of good content, um, both on the podcast and online. Awesome. Well, Dr. Toplinski, thank you so much for being here. And guys, as always, thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you share, like, share with your friends, leave a comment, um, leave a review. That's how I continue to get good guests and I'll see you next week. 